There are two kinds of people in business today, the quick and the dead. So rather than waste your time this semester with a lot of useless theories, we're going to jump right in with both feet and create a fictional company from the ground up. We'll construct our physical plant, we'll set up an efficient administrative and executive structure, then we'll manufacture our product and market it. I think you'll find it very interesting and a lot of fun. So let's start by looking at construction costs of our new factory. Uh, what's the product? That is immaterial for the purposes of our discussion here, but if it makes you happy, let's say we're making tape recorders. Tape recorders? Are you kidding? The Japs will kill us on a labor course. Okay, fine. Then let's just say they're widgets. What's a widget? It's a fictional product. It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Tell that to the bank, take you know. Take it easy. Take it easy. It's the first day, you know. On the board, you will see a cost analysis for construction of a 30,000 square foot facility, which will encompass both factory and office space and is fully serviced by all utilities, a railroad spur line, and a four-bay shipping dock. Hold on, hold on, why build? Hey, you're better off leasing it a buck and a quarter, a buck and a half a square foot. Take your down payment and put it into CDs, or something else you can roll over every couple of months. Thank you, Mr. Mellon, but we'll be concentrating on finance a little later in the term. For the time being, let's just concentrate on the construction figures, shall we? You will see the final bottom line requires the factoring in of not just the material and construction costs, but also the architect's fees and the costs of land servicing. Oh, you left out a bunch of stuff. Oh, really? Like what, for instance? Well, first of all, you're going to have to grease the local politicians for the sudden zoning problems that always come up. Then there's the kickbacks to the carpenters. And if you plan on using any cement in this building, I'm sure the teams would like to have a little chat with you, and that'll cost you. Oh, and don't forget a little something for the building inspectors. Then there's a long-term cost, such as waste disposal. I don't know if you're familiar with who runs that business, but I assure you it's not the Boy Scouts. That'll be quite enough, Mr. Mellon. Maybe bribes and kickbacks and mafia payoffs are how you do business. But they are not part of the legitimate business world. And they're certainly not part of anything I'm teaching in this class. Do I make myself clear? Sorry, just trying to help, that's all. Now, notwithstanding Mr. Mellon's input, the next question for us is where to build our factory. How about Fantasyland? <laughs> Mr. Lee. All right. <laughs> Mr. Perfect. Lee. Oh, that's call perfect. You in, in, that's the students call you. We're being taught a lesson today by Mr. Lee. <laughs> that's that's what the students call you, Mr. Lee? It's, it's that or Coach Lee. Coach so, Lee. Yeah. Or I'm just not, Coach. I don't even know if they say Coach Lee. No, nah, Teacher Lee is more appropriate. Mr. For, Mr. For Lee us. is the predominant, yeah. Mr. Lee. Great time. You don't want to be called by your first name. That's because they're coming at you. <laughs> they call them by right. So how does that work? Yeah. If it, you get if you get close enough, like if they graduate, like maybe it's that. But for think about your teachers growing up or the coaches growing up, they kind of are. You don't even see them as a human being. They are like that archetype of a human being. But they find out like on Zoom, an authority figure, exactly. Coach Black, never known his real name. But if you hit them with respect and you know what you're teaching and they can feel that you care, they're not going to hit you with your first name, even though on Zoom they constantly see it because that's just 
what comes up. So you think if you get on the first name basis, then it breaks down the authority relationship that you need in a, in a, let's say a pedagogical relationship. I, th I think it's a fascinating question that I myself even have to deal with, like how vulnerable are you willing to be with your kids? Cause when you're coaching, it is a much closer relationship. Whereas if they call me by my first name, I would not be embarrassed or whatever, but it still has that authority um, dichotomy or structure. But I think there is something to be said for teenagers saying to you like this thing. However, to your point, or maybe something that would be more familiar with a first name is when a classroom feels like a community or a neighborhood, um, that could work out, but you got to make sure there is still structure. Yeah. Cause the danger is if, if everyone's on a first name basis, that's like what, um, uh, Google workplace where everyone's friends and you come and go, you work late. The boss yeah. brings beers. No, don't worry. We're all friends. There are no hierarchies here. Yeah. We're all peers. Of course, you can't do that probably. Right. I only bring beers to my students on Fridays. So that's the... <laughs> yeah, two, two, two drink minimum. Two drink. Exactly. Uh -huh. cover. It's what it's a cover charge that day. So you're paying me more. Right. That's what I mean is nowadays, nowadays authorities want to hide behind friendship and say we're not authorities Indeed. in order to make things... Well, not necessarily. ...maximally efficient or optimal or whatever. Well, I think you bring up a fascinating thing and not to get too off the rails immediately, but if you could mix professionalism with kids, because what you're job is to do as a teacher is to um, inspire knowledge, give knowledge, give skills that will help them later in life. But it also, if you're able to connect to them via humor or, you know, uh, ins inspiration or art, um, something deeper and more beautiful occurs. And do you need the same structure? But being a pro and being in a safe classroom, because you've ever been in a non-safe classroom where the teacher's getting run over, it's terrible. It's a terrible experience. I'll also say, I've like, been there. <laughs> it sucks. Um, being in an environment where um, you're on a, a last name basis, it, it creates a sense of community in itself. True. Because when I was in ROTC, and uh, you're on you're on a college campus at the same time, I would have two sets of friends. One set of friends would call me Thaddeus, and then every time someone calls me Andre, mm. I know who's talking to me. Mm. And That's an authority, right? It's not. It's not the authority. It's just. They're brothers and sisters in a different way. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, they're they're actual like um, you know, um they're 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 fellow, you know, in our case, airmen, you mm -hmm. know? And it's like, okay, I recognize what that is. So your comrades call you by the last <laughs> name. And I don't mean yeah. that in the socialist right. sense, I mean that in the like compatriots, however you yeah. want to put it. So mm -hmm. yeah, they call you by your last name and it's just you recognize that community and it sets up um, a differentiate, uh, you know, differentiation, two separate categories for those communities. And it, it, it kind of feels good that you can have, it, it makes it so you can have multiple communities. You have two communities, you know, like when you go home and you're around your family, you've got your nickname that people call you, you know? And, um, when you're, you know, with your ROTC buddies, they call you asshole. by your last name. <laughs> that was your I high school not. nickname. <laughs> just, just kidding. Just kidding. I say a nickname, and then which like, will no longer be mentioned. You know, the casual friends will call you, you know, whatever, you know. Yeah. So, like, they're, they, they, it, I think it's a human way of um, just setting up group dynamics. And I think in the classroom, the way to keep order and to set up that relationship is by them calling you, you know, Mr. Mm. Whatever. Mm. You know, the honorifics serve a purpose that, that are, I think they're positive. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it depends, right? You're talking about authority in like an unsafe classroom. I want to ask you, what's that like? And because I mean, I I remember once. I think it was middle school. There was the cool kid who was also the badass and the rebel. And he he wasn't cool. He was a real real bastard. But he would do anything to get a laugh. And the kids couldn't help themselves. You know, they started laughing and he got this poor substitute teacher so worked up. She was in tears and ran out and everyone was just laughing out of control. I'll I'll start with a stat. I think 50% of teachers quit within five years. And I think part of the difficulty with behavior management, particularly in the public school system or underfunded, underfunded community communities, communities of a lower socioeconomic status, your student to teacher classroom ratios are generally 20 plus to one, in some cases 30 plus to one. And so behavior management is what they called it when I was teaching in Atlanta, when I started out with Teach for America, they that was about managing behavior so that bully kid put him out of the classroom that's mm-hmm. how you do that i because i came up in that almost dictator way of authority i didn't have a ton of behavior management problems in the first two years very fortunately there were a ton of people in teacher america who either quit um or it didn't survive and, it, and it's no a fault of their own in a way because it's a crash course in teaching they only teach you for six weeks and so just to, just to get that clear, so are you saying because of the way you grew up, you understood authority in a way that you didn't have a problem with the that I, I think is, or are you saying that the program at the time was zero tolerance, which means you were the, inserted into an environment that already had yeah authoritarian. Nature. One of, you guys are like have you ever heard of the term non negotiable? Of course. <laughs> so that was I mean we were that was kind of what their pedagogy was based off of. You had a certain amount of non-negotiables within your mm-hmm. classroom, which is extremely authoritarian and fascist and it, that said though, there should be a line that students understand and I grew up knowing that line. Like whether it was my parents and the community I came up in um or the especially the the teams that I played for. And in a way when it's done well out of love and care and passion you understand that your classmates matter, your teammates matter, and it's good. But you have to have a leader in the front. And if the person is leading well, you don't have management problems. If the person is not leading well, either they don't know the content, they don't care about the kids mm-hmm. or know how to get the kids mm-hmm. to respect them, that's when it is chaotic. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, it is mentally very difficult for everybody. Can I ask a question with that? Um, do you think that it's different being... Cause you know, like you're an above average sized man. Is that different for you than it would be for a petite woman? I, I think two things on that. I think uh, I had a guy, one of my uncle's friends growing up, we'll call him Mr. Kennedy. Mr. Kennedy said, because of my size, teaching would always be easy because mm-hmm. I, you know, I had this physical presence. And so when he said, when Thaddeus says that though, I'm six, four, but I'm skinny as hell. So it's not, so I'm not going but no, I feel it. But, you got but a deep voice. Though. But imagine though, so. from the perspective of a, a of kid. A, true, true. Yeah. I, well, I never, you, I think I'm, I'm never that aware of physical overpowering, but I do want to have, you know, quote unquote, my shit together and my lesson plan right for the day. That's what's going through my head, through the kid's head. I don't like I've broken up fights. You know, I've never Mm -hmm. had a kid come at me like Mm -hmm. to smaller teachers. To your point, I've seen fights break out in those classrooms. Mm -hmm. But the last point I will say is I've I've seen some small teachers who are, you know, might weigh 80 pounds soaking wet. 
female or male and be great. Mm-hmm. Of, know, course, of course, of right, course. Right, right, I'm, right. I'm just saying, like, yeah. like you said, you know, you, you say your uncle told you that. Yeah, it was my uncle's friend, and, and that's that's what's not yeah, true. Yeah, because <laughs> like I volunteer. Um, you know, reading to, you know, kids between six and like 12. Yeah. Right. And, you know, it's funny, like the really little kids, the six, seven year olds, they don't care. <laughs> They're going to disrespect yeah, right, right. you equally. Yeah, right. But when you get to around, I mean, and, and boys definitely treat men differently mm. than women, mm. even at six and seven. Mm. Um but when you get to around 9, 10, 11, 12, they definitely um, start treating you different, not just based on whether you're male or female, but also on your size. Like there was another dude who volunteered. So when I was volunteering, um, it was me and there was another black dude who was, you know, um, you know, a little bit younger than I was. But he was also, you know, he looked like he had been around you know we been around the block a few times you know same as me and the kids responded to us different to this other dude who this dude i'm not gonna use his name but this other guy who's uh, the director of the program um who kind of had like you know uh, effeminate mannerisms mm-hmm. you know and they would dog this yeah. dude um until they formed a relationship with him he stuck with it. Oh, I see. They formed a relationship with him. Then they would respect him. But the the bar to entry, like for me and this other dude, was like, "You're gonna respect us. I, Sit down." That, that's fascinating bringing this up because I forget this even in my own craft. I, I think teaching is kind of like a voice. And what I always heard in comedy, if you wanted a good comedic voice, you have to do it three to five times a week um, for five years, and then you finally have your voice. And the difficulty I think you find in teaching is that it takes a long time to get good. Now, no matter how effeminate or masculine you are, mm-hmm. um, before you have that voice, yeah, you're going to catch you're going to catch a flag. You know, sometimes that said, I think I was very uh, oh, not fake because I do somewhat believe in fake it till you make it in many situations. And I think it applies to teaching. But you're trying to be the biggest badass in the room, mm-hmm. because if somebody's a bigger badass than you, mm-hmm. whether they're funnier than you or they're going to bully somebody else, it makes other kids uncomfortable or unsafe. Because they have more of the power in that dynamic. Therefore, somebody who is effeminate um, or doesn't deliver the same amount of what they perceive as power mm-hmm. could be, you know, a, a problem. But what I what I think is, after you get good enough, you're you're fine. Because like obviously, no matter how you sound, look or say, if if you care about the kids and they care mm-hmm. about you, you're still mm-hmm. gonna kill it. And that's a beautiful mm-hmm. thing. You know? So I want to go back to what you just said in a second about. The, the need to establish some kind of understanding among the people about who who is in charge. Because it seems like, you know, maybe our liberal proclivities nowadays in enlightened uh, uh, bourgeois society, we don't want to admit that. But um, there does seem to be an, an unavoidable dimension of the pedagogical relation where that that is, you know, has its place and especially in some settings, you need that in order to make sure, like you said, the classroom is safe and not out of control. But just backing up a sec, another thing you said, um, it sounds like you're saying that when a when an educator, so an educator needs to find out who they are, find their voice, you said, so like find their stride, find out some, find themselves. And then once you do that, you have a kind of confidence, which is actually what's needed in order for it to all work. 
Is that right? Indeed, experience, right? And, and to your point, I think it's a very difficult profession. Like those five years when you suck, like if you suck at being an accountant or an architect for five years, it's not, <laughs> you're well, you don't, you don't have a six-year-old telling you to like, <laughs> like go F off, you know, like, mm-hmm. and that it could be a boss and that, that's also painful. But so I, I think the direct negativity that you experience from not having your voice or not knowing what you're doing yet, um, it, it hurts more in the short term. But the experience, I think, is the big part of finding out whom you are and how to best connect to kids, if that makes sense. Okay. So then the other thing is um, that, that, you know, said, you know, it would be fatal if someone else in the room earnestly believed that they were the biggest badass in the room. I want to ask you, like, you know, authority, you said it sounds kind of fascistic, but, but I mean, don't you think there is unavoidably some dimension of authority in a pedagogical relation, which isn't just bad, but which is needed just to structure. Well, I, I think about a Bronx tale and there's this like cliche line in there and it's uh, you know, is it better to be feared or is it better to be loved? And Chaz's character, Palmetary, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. He says, you know, feared is what he says. So when I, when I say um, authority or, you know, fashion, I'm saying that I, I think that has the connotation of being out of fear. But I think the best teachers I know, they do it out of love. And what I mean by that is you could go into a classroom. Like we had this legendary coach at the high school I went to um, that I now teach at, that he could leave the classroom, go anywhere in the building, and a kid would not make a sound in there. But what you find out, the de- the deeper you dig down, whether it's the teaching rabbit, rabbit hole, pedagogical rabbit hole, learning rabbit hole, Kids need to talk to learn. Think about a college classroom. You learn best in groups. You learn best when you're able to have Socratic discussion. Mm-hmm. And so I think finally we're evolving out of that like, okay, good teachers, you know, is kids sitting down and shutting up and watching a lecture. That's not learning. And so you need to lead in a way in which you are uh, fostering discussion that is healthy. So I, th- I think when I say like, I thought, and I think this is wrong, I had to be the biggest badass in the room. I, I was afraid of kids seeming smarter than me or funnier than me and that's kind of insecurity right but i think we a lot of teachers may deal with that but now as an educator i see it as like if you're leading right you're getting kids to be their best selves but to your point there is a line and there is authority involved that they know they can't cross to either bully somebody use an f word or go tell you the sucks. Well, also and at the end of the day i mean we can say that there's no right or wrong answer and stuff, but at the end of the day, people are held to account. I mean, in education, you got to pass the exam, you, whatever you have to appropriate the material you have to, I mean, cause part of education right. is becoming the person, not who enters at the beginning, but the person who walks out at the end, you got to become that person. And so we have to accept that there's a right answer in some respect. And so it seems like some dimension of authority is unavoidable. Right. Because not everyone has that. And, you know, the biggest badass in the room, that's that's kind of indeed maybe a somewhat insecure viewpoint. But, I mean, I've been in classrooms where there were students who were convinced that they were the biggest badass in the room. And it just destroyed the experience for everyone. Even though, like, it, it was hilarious. That story I told you about the right. poor woman running out. We were all convulsive, you know, uncontrollably just laughing. But it, it just ruined everything. 
It's, well, yeah, it's all I was going to say, it's dehumanizing. It's dehumanizing to the teacher, but it's also dehumanizing the other kids that might be getting, you know, trolled. And that said, though, like uh, the last point is funny kids are funny. And I, I find teenagers and kids younger that funny. It's like silly funny. And I think that should actually sometimes be encouraged. But again, within limits, because if you're making somebody cry, you know, that, that's not healthy for anybody. But the big the bully can make the tears funny. Isn't, isn't it almost magical? <laughs> like, <laughs> what, what is that special skill? Oh, well, I think DJF. Like, it's just people like... perceiving a level of confidence, and confidence is always appealing. Mm. The mm. bully, the power looks like confidence, and I think that's that's the idea of the 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 teacher learning how to um, express their confidence to become the teacher has to become confident in the subject matter and their ability to, um, you know, uh, teach the students that subject matter. The bully has to be confident in getting the laugh. And the second dynamic for the teacher seems to be that the teacher also has to be confident that they can control that room. Mm -hmm. So if, you know, kind of both are competing to be the center of attention in that room, because the teacher has to be the center of attention to get their job done. The bully has to be the center of of attention because he has to, I don't know, just get attention. Well, how do you all understand bullies? I mean, they have, they generally have, and this is the sad part about it. They generally have, whether it's, uh, and this may not always be true, but they either come from money, they come from a broken household, or they come from where parents don't necessarily do everything they need to do. And it sometimes is no fault of their own. They're working in a system where they may have to have three jobs, but they're probably not getting the attention they need from those things. That said, too, though, I I think this is often overlooked in pedagogy or like professional development. There's something transcendent about just being funny. Some people are just born funny. Mm -hmm. But the kids that use that to the best of the ability, whether that's like a Dave Chappelle who started doing stand up when they're 14, I, I think how he goes through not mental gymnastics, but deep thought to be like, this is a joke that's going to hit all these different cultures and make people laugh. But I'm also not trying to dehumanize anybody in that moment. I don't know how many teenagers have that. Well, humor can be used to sort of take the pressure off of heavy stuff Mm -hmm. to get people to just feel comfortable thinking it through. Which is why I think it's important for teachers to be funny. You know, I'll say jokes and sometimes they bomb, but other days, like I'll I'll generally hit, you know, Mm -hmm. at least half the time. And that's sometimes good enough. Teachers have to be entertaining. A lecture has to be entertaining to be consumed. Mm-hmm. But the bully, though, the bully finds weakness and the bully shows the weak, the pathetic part of human existence and just brings it out. But he brings it out like whatever your weak spot is, the bully finds it and blows it up under a magnifying glass. There's a quote about and this is a cliche quote, too, but it's it's the best of times and the worst of times. Because when you have a kid like I got a text today from one of my former baseball players with, with one of my cousins last night and they're like, he talked about you for 20 minutes, said he was a favorite teacher. I'm not even trying to flex on it just because it happened today. You know, it was relevant. And it makes you feel amazing. You know, you don't do it for those texts, but it feels great. But when you get bullied or when you are not connecting with the kid, I always, and this could be the Irish stubbornness within me, I'm like, what are what is a different way I could connect to him? But when you have him show you up in front of the class and there are laughter there, it hurts. It hurts from a soul perspective. And you need to have thick skin. And get over that because you got to go teach him tomorrow. But there's something that he is um, perceiving on the weakness. And generally, the worst of them have, I don't want to say psychological issues, but there is a lack of empathy for your you know, value as a human being to them. Well, I, I don't know. Like, on, on the, like, sometimes the, 
being a jester isn't always about bullying or being disruptive. I mean, one of the funniest things, like, when I was... <laughs> that is, I, I see that smile on your face. When I was volunteering, there was a little boy. This this little did you, boy did was Did you make him six. cry? No, no, no. I didn't make <laughs> him cry. No, this dude, this kid made me cry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, is, this kid, first day I go Tell and I volunteer. Tell me you were six too, right? I was, no. Uh, the first day I go and I volunteer, and the first time I meet this kid, he's generally just a disruptive kid. And everyone else generally like was freaking out around him most of the time. And the first time I meet him, he just gets on the floor and just starts humping the floor, twerking on the floor, just being weird. He was <laughs> slapping volunteers on the butt. It was to me, I I could it out was like a situation where I was like, I'm laughing at this kid and I know I should not be laughing. How do I stop myself from laughing? Because he sees me laughing and That's he's, he's going to do yeah. more of it. And like, eventually I learned like what, what like uh, the other teachers will be intimidating and it is like deflating and demoralizing when he does it to you. But for me, I would just like, I would give him kudos, like, dude. Well done, young man. Well done. Well done. Hilarious. Let me get my TikTok out. Let me get my. And, uh, but don't you think? I mean, I can imagine quite easily no. in that situation that um, that's actually okay. This is amateur armchair psychology, but there's some kind of defense mechanism there. If it's in a pedagogical setting, like many times the classroom joker, and I've been there, like making jokes to avoid the difficulty of of learning and inadequacy and trying to mask weakness. Uh, of course. And it's this, uh, Oh yeah. No, no human wants to, to be found out when they don't know it, it is fear of ignorance. And so what I think is best in one of my, um, vice principals said this and it was a very nice comment. He's like, you have a culture of air in your classroom. And I was like, you call me a bad teacher. Like, what are you like culture of air? It means a comfortability with being wrong. And so when you get really good or you know what you're doing, you would like, let's say I was teaching math and I was like, okay, what's the derivative of eight X squared? And you know, four people raise their hand and one of them gets them wrong. Mm -hmm. The one that gets it wrong, like it's fine. So you could get the kid that's bullying people in other classes because he's uh, academically insecure mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. answer something wrong. It'd be fine. But you have to have that safety and mm -hmm. the culture of air within the classroom. I think that takes years and years to get to. With the kid in question, what I started doing, I asked my sister, who's a teacher, like, what can I do, you know, to do this better? And she told me to get like the uh, I read to you, you read to me books. <laughs> and because the kid was generally disruptive because he couldn't read. Right. That's what I'm, that's what I'm driving at. Because about. it seems like he's trying to mask some and, um, I just started issue. doing it where we read together. Or if he was being disruptive, I would do things like we're going to go cut up some paper. You know, we're going to just get that, you know, get negative energy, energy out. out we're yeah. gonna, well, I mean, we're not going to burn things. I mean, we're not, you know, I can't give you fire, but I can give you some scissors. But we're we're going to we're going to cut up, a you know, cup. We're going to whatever, whatever, because we would do little arts and crafts, too. And instead of doing like people get mad at him because he wasn't doing the, the arts and crafts project. Right. It would be like, no, we're just going to do whatever you want with it. You're going to tear this thing up. Then we're going to go do the next thing. The, you know? I think it's really cool that you have the flexibility to be able to, you know, want to connect to them. But the, the problem becomes this, when you have one kid taking up 80% of your energy, yes. right. that's, and I everyone think else's that, time. Exactly. Especially again, underfunded education or underfunded public education right. when the ratios are so high 
you know. Yeah, I mean, so it sounds like there needs to be some kind of control established for the sake of everyone else. And if you try to, if you look like you're trying to be in control or if you look like you're trying to be, they can see right through that. Cause there's almost like a predator instinct that some of them have, right? It becomes this, like, just think about it strategically, right? If I have um, a class of 25 and 24 are killing it and one is acting like a jerk around the kids that he's around, do you want to do 10 minutes of cutting papers by him? Or do you want to say you're gone? I got to teach mm. these other 24 kids because yeah. you have kind of let go away mm. um, your privilege to learn today or right. you're taking away the learning of others. You're only allowed to have so much. And again, like I do it, like I, I hope a lot of teachers don't do this and I, I'm not even playing this, try to play the same. I really have, I like never really hated a kid, you know, not like, like wanting a kid in the classroom. But if you're going to be that toxic and that negative and you can't handle that environment yet, you're not about to take away the learning from other people, you know. Oh, yeah. That reminds me of that Louis C.K. joke. He's like that that kid, right? <laughs> the, the, I want to say his name is is the kid's name was he named him. In Let's the bit. just say I don't know. Jizz in the puss. Is what <laughs> That's right. That is what he named. Right. He's like I want that kid in my life. It's the only time you ever hated a kid. Oh God. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I've ever so heard it. And that always dynamic. goes back to the home. It goes back to the home. Like if you could, I'm not saying it's easy to parent. I haven't done it yet. I intend to one day. If you teach kids to treat other people with respect, they're going to mostly do it. What the sad part though is, again, people come up with difficult situations where parents have been through difficult things in themselves. It's not giving them an excuse, but the majority of educational outcomes in terms of whether it's mm -hmm. test scores or how a kid turns out in life, over 50% of it is on the parent mm -hmm. and the culture. Well, yeah, I mean, justification is completely different from explanation. And so when you explain a problem, that's not to say it's okay, but there are causes and stuff. Mm. Right. So on the other side of, we talked about the bully being disruptive, but like, I would say in my personal case and like my my, my friend, his, his nephew has the problem of um, knowing that being too smart, not, not to say like, like I was, I, like a like smart for, ass? Like yeah, smart like for me, I was, when I was in grade school, when I was in second grade, I would have to take math with the fifth graders. Um, but on the flip side, I didn't learn how to read till I was eight. So, you know, it's, it's a give and a take. It's not like me calling myself the super smart kid. But generally, like during math class, when the teacher was teaching, um, uh, what they did with me was they would have me help teach the class, mm. which made me less disruptive. But um, with my buddy's nephew, they never really figured him out. Um, and for me, I told him, you know, like I was never my mom never had time to put me in sports. So I never really had an outlet for my energy, um, you know, because uh, sports aren't just physically uh, draining they're mentally draining too because you have to learn all of these new different tactics and you know schemes to get a a play done and for him um they put him in wrestling and it helped him academically so i'm wondering like if you ever have to deal with like the student who is a, a smart ass yeah one of the <laughs> you you said two things that really help the one is empower your kids give them jobs assignments in class you're going to be the one that collects homework you're going to be the one that great helps me grade homework you're going to be the one in charge of this video project i got coming up you know and they like it and mm -hmm. it, it but you have to have the structure set up where the tasks are very clear somewhat detailed and, and they take to it 
So that's one of the ways. But you also call to what I think is one of the saddest things occurring in education, which is the place you learn most. And there's a professor, Jail Meta from Harvard, that proved this. The classes you don't you don't learn the most in AP classes. The classes you learn the most, at least from the high school perspective, are sports, after school, extracurriculars, and electives. And what how he terms it is deep learning. And the reason being is because if I'm going to play, you know, baseball is what I played in college. It's what I coach. You know, I've been, you know, in 20 years in the game over that. And I know more. You almost know something so well that you could see what is happening before it happens. You have that Mm. physicality to it that your body and, you know, mental health needs. You have that community with the friendship because you're choosing to Mm. go there. And those becomes your brothers or sisters or however you want to identify them. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's fun. And so the things like these are important things to it, but like we have, why I say it's sad is we're forcing kids on a bell to bell schedule to take at least where I'm at eight classes for eight hours mm-hmm. a day. Then you go mm-hmm. play a sport for two hours. Then you mm-hmm. come home and they're like, here's two to three hours of homework, mm-hmm. particularly if you're an AP kid. And mm-hmm. I remember back in the day when I was in high school, I'd start reading a book and pass out. Yeah, it was brutal. It was brutal. The way my stuff was structured also, I felt like, you know, well, at the time I just, it just felt like, like running an obstacle course. Now in hindsight, I think, my God, there was no pedagogical reflection put into this. But going back to your first point, I think something really interesting you said, it sounds like the only way, so it sounds like you have to distribute authority and and delegate and Mm. share authority in order to structure the experience in a way that can work. And that's definitely how personally my pedagogy has evolved because I went from being, okay, you have to be a dictator, do everything control freak. Um, and that's not how yeah. all of them were. Cause some of them were telling, you know, do all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it becomes this, I only lecture in the beginning of class for five, 10 minutes max. Mm-hmm. And then you put them in breakout rooms, mm-hmm. like at least in zoom and well, post pandemic, you put them in groups mm-hmm. and you say, okay, you're the timer, you're the leader, you're the writer presenter. And that's how they do professional development mm-hmm. too. But you assign them tasks and do it that way. I think it's even more powerful. Like when you're saying, when you distribute power and it happens organically and kids roles switch because mm-hmm. it gives them that flexibility when they're older, you're going to have to work in groups the rest of your life. You're going to mm-hmm. have to get uncomfortable, mm-hmm. um, get comfortable talking um, to other people and presenting in front of people. And relying mm-hmm. on other people. The trusting. And, there and, yeah, trust, vulnerability, and just okay. learn how to flexibly negotiate that and, and letting things slide sometimes, yeah, things you're uncomfortable to, with. How to express when you don't, most important. When I don't know. One, yeah. yeah I, one of the best piece of advice I got when I first became a professional was, well, not even when I first became a professional, but at this recent job, I go in and my bosses are interviewing me um, for because I was on um, like probation first because I was contracted first and then they were going to hire me. So they're interviewing me to be hired. And I they were like, do you have any questions? And I was like, um, where do babies come from? You know, I mean, of course, that's that's like <laughs> that's the second question, that. <laughs> you know, because no one really knows where babies come from. You know, I've it's I've like never the, I've never like the I've never heard a convincing answer. So, well, that, that's you know. another. This is another podcast. That's like, another how do you talk to sex ed in America, like modern day? <laughs> but um, um, I asked my bosses, um, you know, um, what's like, what's the best way for me to qu- acquire knowledge? You know, what what is what is the best way to do this? And they basically told me it's not about when you're sitting in a meeting. Um, they're like, first go to meetings, right? 
because you're going to get a lot of information. And, you know, the best thing to do when you're at a meeting, you know, isn't to always have an answer. The Mm -hmm. best guy at the meeting is usually the guy who's quiet and just absorbs the information and comes in when they have something Mm -hmm. to present. So they were basically telling me, um, if you don't know something, shut up. (laughs) Yeah, you don't have to be Johnny on the spot all the time. Right. And that pressure, I think, that pressure makes people oftentimes, and it's a pressure that's exerted on a lot of people nowadays, like you got to know everything, you got to be the best Mm because you got to compete and you got to get the... Especially with with Google, you know, with with, uh, technology at your fingertips, a lot of people expect you to always have an answer when that's just... Not not the proper way to do things. But is that also America in the system where you have a ton of overworked, stressed out people that mm-hmm. think they have to be on, you know, 24 hours? And it makes people who disrupt everything, right. ultimately. Yeah, I mean, my limited experience, like you were saying, going from you got to be on top of it and control to like learning to distribute the authority and share and structure the experience that way. That's definitely resonates with me because at the beginning, you're afraid and. And it doesn't work if they smell the fear, but let's move more towards, cause I want to go speci- so yeah. specifically to teaching in high school. Hmm. Um, so like not kids, well, maybe they're kids, but they're young adults. And kids. well, I, I mean, what I mean is, so they're, at 18, tra- they're still kid, you know, in air quotes, kids, yeah, but I, I get what you're saying. Too. I, I, I mean, teenagers Teenage, yeah. and, uh, in, in a, public school setting in America. So we get to those sort of things you're pointing at, like specifically, like, I want to know, like how you think uh, inequality issues appear in like class, not just inequality, but like how, how do American problems appear in the, the schools? The thing that I've been pondering, cause I got an education because of the achievement gap, or at least that's how it was phrased to me mm-hmm. where it's originally it was, but I think before some study was done within the last 15 years, it, it was very much attributed to race. And basically some study came out and said black and brown kids do worse than white and Asian kids based off a race. New study comes out and they're like, it's money. Money is the big thing. You're kidding. (laughs) 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 I am not. I am not. not. So it's it's the money. And it's it's, again, it's not to de-emphasize. Obviously, you know, um, and this goes from the kids that I taught in again, air quote, suburbs of mm. Atlanta and where I air quote now at my alma mater, you know, suburbs of Chicago, right? But if we're gonna talk class, I think over 80% of the kids that I teach are on free and reduced lunch mm-hmm. and over 90% were on free and reduced lunch, meaning a metric uh, associated with low economic status, mm-hmm. low socioeconomic status, right? And the set, the thing that's been revolving around my head is so, this. So that's the that's the PC way to say class in America. Yeah. So it's it's sad. So they would you know be called because I'm not trying to call them this because this is not how a lot of these kids maybe want to be viewed. It's lower class, mm. right? Because I well, can let's say working class. We're, and that and that's I think the truth is the working class. I mean, that's what that's what the administrator shies away from. But I don't I don't Sorry, think working class is 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 the proper term. I think they use lower class uh, for a purpose because not every working class person is going to be on lunch assistance. 
Right. Well, I mean, upper, lower, these are ways of, you know, sort of making things ambiguous and the more hand waving, the more you can distract yeah, from the real but I mean, the class dynamic problems. is one thing, but when you're talking about children, it is a direct relationship to the, the, the money. Like, I don't have enough money for books type of deal. Um, I sure, but I mean, class is, is yeah, fair enough. Agreed. But so I it's, remember- it's like when we always talk about classes within classes, you know, like this is... I mean, social class in the classroom. Yeah. Well, they, they tried, and this is particularly with the Obama administration, with the race to the top and No Child Left Behind back to Bush. What they tried to do was say, the zip code is determining these kids' future. You know what mm-hmm. we need to make better? We need to make the schools better. The teachers got to mm-hmm. do more. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. So they're getting away from the follow the money. You know, it's not like you can't pay teachers in West Virginia below $50,000 a year and say they are the problem for the low class kids. But can you pay their, can you pay the children's families less than $50,000 a year and expect them to be able to sit still long enough? Exactly. Because exactly. I mean, exactly. I remember reading some point in my undergrad Gramsci's prison notebooks. And he was saying like, he was saying, you know, what is it to be a Marxist, um, a Marxist intellectual? Um, and you've got, you got, you know, academic intellectuals, and then you've got the sort of organic intellectual, which comes out of the class that it um, thinks about. And, you know, traditionally Marxism was supposed to be a reflection by the working class on the working class. That, that hasn't, that's not the case so much anymore now. It's become very academic. But, but he was saying like that the challenge for a working class intellectual who wants to understand where, they at, where they're at and where they come from and why there are these problems, he was saying, you know, it's not just money. It's like in order to be able to sit still for eight or 10 hours a day and just to focus, that is, that is a skill in itself. I mean, physically, just to be able to sit there. I don't know if they're debunking this, but you guys, you know, the marshmallow tests, right? No, no idea. Okay. I'll explain that. So they bring kids into a room and they have a scientist like white coat, you know, type guy. And he puts a marshmallow in front of a kid and they say to the kid, Oh yeah. If you eat this right away, mm-hmm. you could do that. Or if right. you wait 15 minutes, I'll bring you another marshmallow. And it was insanely correlated to just better job later in life, more life happiness, making more money, like mm-hmm. that stuff. And so what they called is delayed gratification. Now, where they're debunking it or you know, diving back into this study a little more, it's if you come up in a lower class and your parents are already scrounging for food, mm-hmm. that kid's going to eat the market. Like, mm-hmm. It's not even a question. And then and so the, the idea thing, is that if, if you can't postpone gratification, you're not going to be able to be successful in a professional setting. Because you can't sit and then you like, because if you understand Marx, which like, we, you know, capital is a very <laughs> verbose and difficult book to understand. But you're going to have to be able to go along the thought process of somebody that goes very deeply connecting to many different philosophical, academic, and intellectual uh, platitudes. And that requires patience and that requires mindfulness. Where where I have hope is that I think we're doing more things uh, about mindfulness or understanding consciousness more and more as we go. The sadder part, though, is if inequality is widening, I don't think you see that. And the last point I'll make is... Montessori said when kids were in middle school, because it's also like, why do we expect or why do we want sixth, seventh, and eighth graders to sit, you know, in a classroom sure, sure. all day? Like when your body is changing, your hormones mm-hmm. are flying, and mm-hmm. play and physical movement is so important. So that part of the model needs to change too. Sure, fair enough, fair enough. But I mean, just to be clear, like for instance, some of the students I have now at the university level, these are young people who have been prepared from day one to be. Um, the one who gets the best job and to, to have articulate views on complicated questions 
and to have you know refined opinions and to and to be able to patiently sit and absorb a vast array of information in order to come to an informed decision and and these people are very young and it is a challenge i think even abstracting completely from the intellectual training the discipline not like tyrannical discipline where you sort of stand on your own shoulders look down at yourself and sort of be a, perform like a dictator to yourself but like the sort of bodily discipline it takes just to to do homework mm. i mean i see class playing out there it's not just like do you have enough money to buy lunch it's also like can you can, can you, you sit even, still? Can you pay, and, and I mean, can you pay social attention? media has completely changed consciousness in that in that regard. In that, all these kids came up because we came up. I didn't have a cell phone until I was a junior. Right, that right. wasn't a thing when I was in high it, school. And so, what I I call it virtual consciousness because people talk about uh, you know cyberbullying or something, or you know why not, like looking at texts. And I think it's fun because like, if you were going to call a girl or a boy growing up, and it, let's say more in the relationship romantically, right, you would call their home have to speak to their dad or mom right is uh, and so you're socially building these Tiffany skills there or exactly whatever, yeah. but it was not texting or with billy them. or whatever because I, I think where they have more anxiety because everybody's like well it's the cell phones i'm like well okay go down the rabbit hole like what about the cell phone i think when you're waiting to receive or send that text and that is then correlated to your own dopamine or late levels of anxiety that takes you out of a present moment when you're learning and you have to then learn, and it's not impossible, it's not to say that we live in a dystopia, but you just have to learn self-control as to when am I going to look at the cell phone and when am I not? Because to your point, kids even coming up, PMC and Richer, they're struggling too. Really? It's, I well, I thought that's what part of you were, you were saying, it's also the university level kids. Like the intentionality changes guess, with technology. Because like, like that, was, that, that, was, that was a good insight with, you know... Um, you know, when you're calling somebody's home, you're trying to date and you have to talk to the parents. It's also like you have to think if you have to call someone on the spot. Um, I remember being a young man, like pacing around the room, like trying to figure out the perfect words. What? When you can text something, you can craft the perfect Write words. Write a little haiku. Right. <laughs> You know, but when you are on the, the spot, you have to be witty. You have to have a yeah. different type of intelligence. It's not an academic type of intelligence. It's like what you said. You have to be funny. Well, you have to be a performer. What's funny about what you're saying is I almost get like Cunning. more anxiety from texting than I do calling somebody. Me too. Because like, what we're doing right now flows. We have a conversation. Yeah. The, that could flow on there. But like you, there's they don't have to sense on the back right away. Neither do you. And so the flow is completely like, it just doesn't feel as... Uh, the context is missing. Natural. Yeah. And the context and the emotion. You mm -hmm. know, despite the cues are missing. All of that is right. missing that we've learned to play off of right. in the technology that we had. Yeah. That they don't. It's more deadpan. You know, right. it's um, let me craft this thing academically. I have to understand how to be witty through like written language rather than like spoken word. The type and, of language, you know. And my hope is, I'm optimistic. I think love will always exist, but I think the the threat we're under is that expressiveness and mm -hmm. that understanding is going. Whether that's like the incel movement or you know this. What do you mean? Inval like what is it called? Involuntary. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know what the word means. But yeah. I mean so I, I think it's like you know when before cell phones, you had to ask somebody out, you know, or get asked out to. Mm -hmm create these relationships now that everything could be more impersonal 
and you don't, you know, that human being that in you, that is your most beautiful self, where it's your voice and your passion, your facial expressions, you, that they don't see that shit, you know. It's okay. also something I learned romantically. I don't know if it's true. Like someone told me and I kept it in my head is that familiarity is the most attractive quality. Hmm. So, I mean, to me, it, it's can't just, do that with emojis, can you? You can't like, it, it, you know, the way to put it for for all for all the old heads that we know is who, who watch Seinfeld is just use the Costanza method. You just, Wait you're just a second, there. that's not good advice. You know, you're always just you're there. You're in someone's head. You gotta come back. They keep on right. seeing you. They become familiar with you. You just become something in there. For head. a second, right. I thought you meant like you keep all the receipts in your wallet until no. you can't fit yeah. in your pocket. No, 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 no your no. hair falls like, out and you get it, fat. Or no. is it or is the neurotic George Costanza sexier than every single Gen Z or where I know exactly what you're saying. the jingle. But because he's trying to and that again like not to be completely lame about this he he is insecure and neurotic as mm-hmm. to his own ability to love a woman or have be loved and so he's thinking of all these different angles. things angles. yeah it's a game he, man i can't like, even imagine being in high school now with the phone stuff because bruh. it's hard we, it's hard <laughs> it's hard anyways no matter what just just with the nakedness the lack of privacy like the, I mean, nude nude pics didn't exist. I mean, I just oh, that. yeah, you've really. told me terrible things. The like, old girls, like when I was my first, uh, if we do want to get back to the education thing, yeah, but I think please. this is interesting though because this, this is for kids. Um, there were no like camera phones didn't really exist. Like I had a flip phone when I was a junior. You know, they would take like a, I don't know, they would have a picture of like four total pixels on it. I don't right. think there was even <laughs> that. When, <laughs> when I was in high school, I don't think there was even that. Seriously, I'm not kidding. No, this so I, I no we were in high school. Yeah, you played snake and call it a day. But uh, now it, it's again. I, I go back to this. If you're raised the right way in terms of values, and that could, that could be white, black, brown, um, however you identify. Okay. Um, you're, you're not probably going to send a ton of that stuff and you're not going to spread it around, which is kind of a POS move, uh, meaning piece of shit. But what you have is you, you don't mean professional managerial. No, 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 no. Um, but what happens uh, is somebody gets a color or whatever. PLC. Yeah. Somebody gets a nude picture and spreads it around to their boys or like whoever they hang out with. That's what I, that's, what, that's what I what heard you now. said. Yeah. yeah that's Paper just it's very sad. incredible. That's how that's, that person is remembered, you I know, for at least a year. That's know, that lack of like, they don't know how to, they don't know the dynamics it's of hell privacy hell. and right. the dynamics of actually performing on the spot. Because even, I would say, even if there were camera phones, when we were kids, the way we grew up before that, people had such a paranoia built up around, we have to perform on the spot. Like, Mm. I have to craft. Before I call this girl, I got to work out the angles. If I say this, she's going to say this, and she's just going to be feeling me, and it's going to be perfect, right? You have to go through all of those angles just to work up the confidence to call the girl that you're so paranoid. Nobody's bringing a phone like that to any of those situations. Like, like a whole mantra when we were growing up was don't leave a paper trail, man. Like we were all like mafioso it's, in mindset. And, man. and my last point on this is we also need to get more comfortable talking about sex ed and sexuality, like with kids, like what is now culturally okay and what's not okay, you know? Yeah. And I'll never forget. It was eighth grade, Mr. What was his name? He was a phys ed teacher and he also did um, sex ed and some other course, like I think health. 
Mr. Damn, I can't remember what his name was. Mr. Mister. Big guy, big guy. Um, and the only thing I remember, you know, it was just incredible. He said, and this was part of sex ed at the time in that place. Um, he said, if you sleep with one person, you're sleeping with everyone they've slept with. And so do the math. That means I'm winning. <laughs> well, what? Wait, you want to be gonna? That is. Oh, that's that's yeah. not. Can that's, we get back to the education that's, that's neither the intended oh, okay. uh, result, right. nor is that how I think. Sorry. No, Sorry. that 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 bully kid who made the woman run out in tears. Well, I think that's what he said. He was laughing, and everyone else was kind of blushing, ashamed. I think. Well, and it's the sad part, like of the dogmatic religious groups who will pass around like a Snickers bar and be like. You know, it starts with one person and then the goes another. Yeah, right. No, yeah. like so. Imagine a Snickers bar touching twenty hands. That's yeah. They did that to to what they they that like the the Christian. Yeah, right, right. Um, like the the abstinence only training. Right. That was a thing they would do. They would pass around like uh you know a paper towel or pass around a yeah. sock and everyone would touch it and it would get dirty right. and it'd be like. Oh, this is what it's like, you know. That's yeah, it's, that's, that's the shit. Hopefully, that's vulgar, the thing of the vulgar past. Sex ed teaching, yeah. But okay, so is there anything else that comes to mind for you? Like, how does class manifest in teaching in a public? School? So you spend the a poor, lot of time. The poor, like, and I'm not trying to be mean. You've with spent this. the poorest kids in the aggregate do the worst educationally. It's hmm. just, it's just what. Is but in rich the and data. poor, these aren't. Okay, so class. So I, I get okay. Let's differentiate. But I mean, and what so I mean, you spend a lot of time. Yeah. So you've been in university in different places. Right. You've been in elite places. You've been in public places. You've been in private places, lots of places. How do you see class in, um, in the school situation? Yeah, and, and in like, how does that compare to university? Right. And I, and I'll clear up that comment too. What I mean by that is that we need to do a better job of why do we have all these different classes and the lower classes are so much further behind other classes that are higher performance. So I'll, I guess I'll start with, you know, I was at, uh, I did my master's at an Ivy League university and I dealt with kids from all classes there. And what was the most interesting is that the kids from the working class, even though they were at Harvard, which may be perceived as a pretentious place. And some people there are extremely nice, kind, thoughtful, curious, and helpful. And we were able to create, you know, like I was a filmmaking, you know, minor and education policy major. And we were able to create films together. It was very interesting. Now, back to the high school experience, which you would have, again, let's say some kids from, if you imagine, uh, household incomes of 40000 or below, 30000 or below. I don't know if we had at the high school that I went to where I'm at now. I don't know how many Ivy League kids we've had that have ever come out of there from that mm -hmm. demographic of income. But if you mean by class where... Like, who do I teach in these high school communities? It's generally kids, fathers, and mothers who are, so in, in Chicago, you have, you know, cops, firemen, other teachers. Mm -hmm. Then you have retail workers. So people who just work mm -hmm. at Target or something. And you get mm -hmm. Uber drivers, Lyft drivers. Then you have some parents, the poorest schools I've ever been at, I had kids on their mom, single mother household, mm -hmm. mom's on aid, mm -hmm. or mom had mm -hmm. two, three jobs. Mm -hmm. And what you see, I guess, like, so is the question then from somebody like that, like the, I had a basketball player, mom was on public assistance. Mm -hmm. He coaching him, like you love him. He's great. But in terms of the consciousness of what he thinks he could do after, and he mm -hmm. thinks he'd go to the NBA. Like his like, horizon. Right. And it's like, homie, you're at five, eight. And I just beat you two out of three times one-on-one. -on -one, <laughs> and I didn't even play high school basketball. 
So the consciousness as to what, where they want to go and how they're going to do it, it's not always there because mm-hmm. within that class, they, we do not have the right educational or professional opportunities or money to even consider engineer, lawyer, doctor. Or let's say a realistic assessment of one's place in the world. I mean, that would be my first. It's it's a lot of like the the saddest thing I think is is delusional, get rich quick. That's the word I was, the phrase I was thinking of, get rich quick. Like, let me ask, this is a question actually for you, uh, Daniel, because you teach people in, in 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 the college setting. And one of the things I've heard, because I didn't grow up rich. Um, and you know, but I was, you know, talk about the exception to the rule. My mom always made us, she always told us to be the best, to be the smartest. Right. So even if I fell short of that, I was never, never failing academically. Right. So I went to college, but one of the things that was in my mind growing up working class and growing up with a mom who did work three jobs, um, like Mr. Lee was saying, um, some of the things that was in my mind is I didn't want to disturb my professors. Right. So I never really went to office hours Mm. because I didn't want to be a burden. Mm. Um, And I noticed that like I've had other friends um, who finally either it clicked or they knew it from their upbringing that those office hours are for you. Right. That's the difference. I never thought that. Right. So that held me back. A right. lot. Do you do you see that dynamic? Yeah, for sure. That yeah, and just to be clear, like I didn't grow up rich. I've been I've studied at a community college, a private Catholic college, European public institutions, um, American state school, an American state school, and then at a, a very good private institution. And uh, so I've been all over, and my background isn't the same as that of the many of the people I teach now. And, um, and I would absolutely say, yes, that's the distinction because my, my students, like I said, they, they've been prepared for this. They're, they are, they're adults already and, um, professionals already and intellectuals and, and maybe there's some shyness or some, some insecurity about performing well, but, but the idea is, there is an understanding there that this, this is, you know, this is for me, this is about me and my development and my education. Whereas, you know, in my experience as well, it was like, there's a certain self-effacing shyness about showing up, for instance, to office hours, you know, a, a, an acquisitive young mind wants to, because the attention is, let's be honest, the attention is, is uh, gratifying and stimulating, you know, when someone takes you seriously intellectually, but also, I mean, Yeah, I mean, you can show up to office hours and, you know, you're kind of uncertain about yourself. Well, I would say that's the distinction. And, and that's the, the class distinction because others definitely, aren't. Definitely. And that's what it's funny you say that because that's what I tell seniors before you go. Like I tell them the first week, go and see your professors and talk to them and just talk to them as normal human beings, you know, mm-hmm. because that's what I, I was shy, you know, and I came up. My mom was a Catholic school teacher. You know, she made like 30 grand a year when I was in high school. My dad was middle management, so he wasn't making a ton. Like, you know, we were never poor, but like we were Mm -hmm. never rich. And I think the culture I came up in, I love the public high school experience. 
but because you either weren't always forced to talk because you're mm-hmm. in too big of classrooms, haven't had a ton of academic conversations. Mm-hmm. I, in my head, professors are brilliant and geniuses mm-hmm. and like, I'm not right. Mm-hmm. So that's it. Well, that's what's in your head. And so you don't go talk to them and it's a sad thing. So what I try to tell seniors before you go, is like, yo, just because they may not talk, talk like you look like you have the same vibe as you, you still got to, you know, get out of your comfort zone. And the more I see it, the, the sad kids do do not want to get out of their comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Do not want to move I mean, away. It's, it's hard because they know what they know. You know? It's hard. It's hard yeah, also because like um, I wonder if it's all if it's a class thing because this is where class uh, for me clashes with you know uh, the social side of things or because for me something that was always conscious in my mind was I don't want this person to see me as a dumb poor black kid. It was always mm. both. Mm. I don't I don't want to be revealed as, you know, um, not deserving of this Mm. this this attention. And in my mind, you're like. If 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 you're revealed to be the kid who is, you know, both poor and black, they can dismiss you as, yeah, okay, they're just they're they're dumb. They're dumb because of their poorness and their blackness. And I wonder, like, for me, it was both. But I'm wondering if if, if, if it seems like it was the same for you guys that um, it was a class thing and yeah. that maybe I'm wrong about the racial aspect of it. Well, th- I if think that's personal. You it, know? Well, to, to your point. Like, that's where I think we're at this fascinating cultural moment where I've heard stuff and I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but I had a buddy. He lost one of his jobs and somebody, his co-worker, his wife's wife's talking to somebody at work. Right. And the co-worker goes, well, he's white and educated. He'll be fine. Right. And so it's this interesting thing, especially in a post-Trump era and who voted for Trump. It's like. Is that the right? Is that the healthiest consciousness we need to come together as a class or as an oppressed? Or class? is it true? Right. I don't think is it's it? true, and I don't think it's true either. I don't think it's true. But, and but so where you're tripping me on my last point on this was when I when I was in uh, Morgan Park growing up. That was a white and black community. They moved to Oak Lawn. That was white, Latinx, and Middle Eastern, and then Richards, Cal Park, and Robbins, predominantly black. Uh, Chicago Ridge predominantly white and also is getting more in Middle Eastern and Oakland's getting more and more diverse. That was the first time in my life I had interacted with cultures that were not Irish and Catholic significantly, okay, for an extended period of time. And because of that, I think when I started teaching in Atlanta, when I was seeing kids who didn't look like me, mm-hmm. just look, I was able to connect in a way just because I had that experience, you know, and that diversity. Yeah, this is interesting. And I think what happens when kids get to college if they are in a cultural melting pot before, they're going to be in a better spot. Uh-huh. I think if you've only come up, whether it's white and privileged, Asian mm-hmm. privileged, Latinx and privileged, and you haven't been around another class, that's when sometimes uh. biases come out or the kids from the lower classes are afraid to talk to the professors because right. they don't feel deserving. Which is, I don't you know. know. I, I always grew up in, in, right. in the places I grew up in were very class diverse. Mm. Yeah, um, but o, OPRF, did you go there? OPRF and then Naperville Central. Yeah. And in my mind, because of that, I thought um, I, I, I couldn't reveal myself to the professor because I couldn't. 
like it was always cognizant in my mind that I'm a little bit lower in station than the other mm. kids that I grew up with. Mm. So I'm a little bit lower at this college too. So I have to be, I have to do double what they do, mm. which means I, yeah, I right. have to be 100% sure prove when yourself, I go yeah. into, yeah, I have to prove myself constantly. You know, it, it was that sense. And, and kind of to get to the point for both of you, um, mm. So the question is, um, when you see the class dynamic mixed with the racial dynamic to kind of get to the point, do um, wealthy black kids go to office hours the same as or more than is is, is it a class yeah. thing or is there a racial well, component well, I, I to hope, it? I hope my roommate's going to be OK with me saying this. My roommate from Harvard, um, it's not like he's famous, but like he's kind of known and he was the education advisor to um, Elizabeth Warren. He's black he's from Georgia. Um, mom worked for Coca-Cola Corporation. Very, you know, awesome family. One of my best roommates ever. Definitely better than my current roommate. Um, <laughs> but I love, but I, I love it. You know, we, we were emailing each other last week, and he actually just got a legislative position with Warnock, who won in Georgia. So he's going to work for him. And he, like, ten times were like when we were at Harvard together. Like he would be going to the office hours. He would be making connections. Mm -hmm. So when the Warren thing opened up, I was super happy for him. He did that. Mm -hmm. I was like, I, I was working three jobs. I was mm -hmm. like making films. And I was like, I'm at Harvard. This place is like academic fairyland to me. Mm -hmm. Like, how am I going to be able to be as smart as some of these It's a different thing for different people. But what kids need to find what I try to educate them in, when you find the thing you love, like I love film, I would talk to my film professor as much because mm -hmm. I had in my head, maybe I could do this. This is where I grew up. I don't know any artists. You, you know athletes mm -hmm. and you know working class workers. I didn't know any philosophers where I grew right. up. Right. I, I met some, but they didn't even know they were philosophers because that wasn't a thing. Right. Mm -hmm. That just wasn't a thing. I mean, most of most of the philosophers who don't know their philosophers in that setting, they're outcasts and riffraff and you know, people mm -hmm. have trouble fitting in because let's face it, it is semi-pathological to spend most of your time just thinking about <laughs> things. And so yeah, that's something that resonates with me. And I, I can't say much, though, about how it interfaces with race, because at least in the context of discussion, discussion of public high school, because, I mean, in my public high school, I mean, I come from a pretty rural area of Ohio and you could count. I mean, there were there were Latino people, but um, you could count on the two hands that I have, how many black people there were there, how many Asian people. I mean, in, in, in like an imperial, an empirical question, as far as, um, your it students might also be an imperial now, question in America. No, no, no. I mean, <laughs> the students that you engage with now, um, you know, as you know, uh, I don't, do you call yourself a professor? You no, know? I mean, um, a, a lecturer, a lecturer as a lecturer, but you have office hours and all that stuff, mm -hmm. right? Occasionally the, the people, the kids that you engage with, do you see that even like, the um the the black students that are you know not of the working class do they take advantage of the opportunities the same as the you know white students are you saying below or above the working class above i mean either way right so we're saying that there's a class distinction the way people interact academically right well let me say in my experience with this um Obviously, so I take issue with some things on a political level that, uh, you know, liberal ideology, but um, the, the statistics that are pointed to about representation are just statistics. They're true. They're facts. There is a, so 
so-called underrepresentation issue, but I'll add to that. So I, so it's hard to say because the, the kind of people there are, there are more white people. Um, and then, but there are, but I'll also add this though, a, a, a minority in that setting is working class people. Mm. And that, mm-hmm. that's, that's like, Mm. I I can't give you a good answer, but I, I, yeah, but okay. I think you get what I'm I was saying. Trying, you know, yeah, you I, get what I'm yeah. saying. Like we, right? Working class people are a minority too in that setting, and they. So it's it, you don't really have the data set. Well, I don't have the data set, but that tells you something as well. Right. Right. It's about right. about the representation problem. So, yeah, that that doesn't answer my question, but it answers my question. You know, well, it gives a picture at least. Right. Uh, so yeah, you know, I was I was gonna say something else. I th- well, I think the last part when when you come up with money or drink, like I, I like to look at it, like let's look at Naperville versus mm-hmm. a Bridgeport versus a Cal Park or versus an Inglewood, right? Mm-hmm. If you come up and your parents went to college and they know how to say a few things before we go, like hey, talk to professors. Mm-hmm. You know, you deserve to be here. Um, even and this as is simple for you. as this. And they like not in a self-centered sense, but like this isn't for anybody right, else. Right, exactly. Get or, what you or, paid for. Exactly. Or let's say it's a let's say it's a state school or a or a public school. This is paid for and this isn't federally. I mean it's it's mostly paid for out of revenues. This is like for you if if no one else. Because if you come up and you could kind of do what you want, you go on the vacations that you want, play the sports that you want, have all these extracurricular and musical activities that you want. In your head, you're you're just it's not like some of the, the worst is the entitlement that could come from that because that's a very annoying, I think, character trait, right? Mm-hmm. But they're just like they're just go- not going through the motions, but they're living. They're like, Oh, this is what you do, you know. I'm in trouble. Um, or I don't know, I'm gonna go to the office hours that'll mm-hmm. help me out because all their problems are always solved because they have a higher level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If Maslow's hierarchy was lower than that, and you mm-hmm. have a kid who hasn't. And that this is this American, you know, thing, because if you look at it again, disproportionately poor black Americans may not be or poor Hispanic Americans, poor, you know, poor Americans, whatever, whatever, represent nearly as much in the liberal elite um, college structure um, or and it could be conservative elite college structure. But again, I mean, I think the simplest data's point was. Did your parents go to college? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if they didn't, but you came over as an immigrant and the family's hungry, meaning like, yo, you're going to go be a doctor, lawyer, engineer. This is how you got to do it. Mm. Boom. Go. They might fare better, actually, than people yes. who were born here and didn't yes. go to college and had kids because that's just a totally different trajectory. But let me back up a second. There was something you were saying before, mm. and it, it conjured up a memory of something you said to me in the past, because I think around the time we first met, you were talking about teaching in Chicago schools. And I thought, wow, that must be, that, that must present certain challenges because I mean, that was before all the conversations that we've had about this before I knew the things you tell me and about how it is. And, and I thought also from my own perspective, like, you know, I taught English in Brussels and then I ended up, you know, teaching a bit, um, some, some language classes in university and so forth. And just being a kind of dorky, dorky, white guy who never did any sports from a rural town, um, I thought maybe that's a challenge just sort of assuming from my own standpoint. And you're like, no, actually, actually it wasn't so hard. You can relate to those people. And you said like, I think you said like, well, you know, I grew up doing sports and, 
I, I, you know, and you say you come from a, a working class neighborhood and, yeah. and ultimately the, it wasn't so hard to bridge that. Well, it, it was this, it was like, I remember being, I never played football. I was afraid to play football. Like I love baseball. Me I too. Love basketball. <laughs> and I think data has proved us to be right in that regard. I played football, but, but my dad, so my dad says every boy should either play football or wrestling, which is kind of a machismo. Way I did both. Yeah. Right. Again, Superman. Get, yeah, wrestling. Y'all a different breed. Y'all that's, different that's breed. That's why. That's why the bully called me Danielle because I never played uh, <laughs> <laughs> played football or wrestling. I think that's a cheap he's, he's one. That's way too right easy. I thought Galileo but, was cool though. Let me tell you. He, I, 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 I'm not going to try to misquote this kid, but when I finally started playing football, and that, that's the beauty of Richards. And I, I'm going to tell a quick little anecdote um, that I think is very important about education. And then get back to. Uh, the importance of sports and how that made me more cultural, culturally assimilated or understood cultures that were not my own. Um, I I was at Columbia studying school psychology and with, they have an intro video where it shows you all these like professors and like they give you five seconds. And there was one professor who said something that blew my mind where it's just like sometimes going to like high school, like, listen, Get high test scores, yeah, but the test score shouldn't be the impetus. The impetus should be the socialization, mm -hmm. meaning sometimes, even if you don't learn anything, but you learn about different cultures, you don't learn about mm -hmm. um, how to socialize, how to be a human being, how to have good character, how to be a person of your word, how to get things from other people, how to help people when people need things from you. That is just as important, if how to, not how to, more. How to important. become the person that, that is needed in the situation. And Ex so forth. Exactly. And in no way, shape, or form to lower academic rigor, but it is something that is very cool and almost transcendent. But the the sports thing was, I, I didn't know what I was doing, but I could throw a ball kind of hard. Like that was the baseball player within <laughs> me. You know, I'm also related to uh, Bill Lee, who was a pitcher for the Boston Red Sox and also the only registered. Yeah, royalty. The only registered communist to also Ooh, play major league baseball. Respect. So, anyway, um, and uh, the red. He put the red in the red side. <laughs> but don't bump. You should. You should write on I that. I should have been a comedian. You should have. You, you can still. Like, you're in the perfect city for it, man. Talk to Leo. But I, I think I threw a pass in this one guy named Wayne, and he was black. He was like, "Damn, that white boy could throw." And, and it wasn't like I didn't take offense to it. I didn't take, you know, I'm not trying to flex on it, but it, it bridged this gap for me where I didn't grow up hanging out. I didn't have a ton of black friends. I'm not even trying to play black friend card right now, but that it's just cultural closeness of camaraderie and brotherhood. Mm -hmm. And you're in this together. Like that changed me as a human being. Right. Because that's what I started to wonder about this. this so sports, there's so little bullshit involved in sports. Mm -hmm. If you compare it to the, the intellectual, uh, acrobatics that can happen, the sophistry and so forth that can happen in, um, in, you know, any discursive thing, uh, maybe art, 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 is art has its I'll, own I'll bullshit, but art can also be, I'll talk about that in a second, but, but I mean like in sports, like you can do it or you can't, you're a part of the team or you're not. And it's, it's, it's kind of clear cut and dry and you're, you can do it and people can connect and establish respect on that. And it seemed to me that that could be a way that, you know, that could sometimes race and ethnicity in the United States are presented in, as these sort of things, which are so hard to bridge, but it's it seems equalizing. like, yeah, Hank, yeah. Hank Aaron passed away, um, yeah. yesterday, I believe. And, you know, he, he come, he's standing on the shoulder of giants of like Jackie Robinson and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Willie, 
Stargell and didn't uh, he wasn't he the one who beat Babe Ruth's record? Yes, yeah, seven hundred fifty five. And it was at a time when it was getting really See, weird. He was getting. I thr- fucking know something about sports. <laughs> they like I gotta give snaps for that. That's what's up. Like, I played baseball yeah. until I was nine years old. There you go. Ba- and baseball is a great game too <laughs> to get older and just like love it. And we're in a perfect neighborhood. You guys got to go to Sox games, you know, when they're coming up. But he he was getting like death threats from white people that you know after like he was going to break Babe Ruth's record it was kind of almost a white supremacy thing so but what sports has to do like I I think it is undeniable how big Jackie was for the culture and some people say there's a great I highly recommend everybody that listens to it all 10 of you um there's a great 76. You guys are going to hit three di- triple digits. I know it. On this one. 76. This one better but, be the 70, most I just checked to. 77. That's awesome. With, with Kevin's, that's dope. You know. But, but the bait. We're going to break 100 with you. Hell yeah. Let's go. So can I get five cents dividends? But. Um, it's called the baseball documentary by Ken Burns and they go into Jackie's legacy. They go into Hank Aaron and they talk about race and they have all these baseball writers talk about it. It's just fascinating. You know, it's, you know, some, some people on the left would hate George will because of his politics, but how George will writes about baseball is amazing and beautiful. And some people on the left are on there that, you know, my Billy, you know, is in there. But the, the thing about sports is that whether it's Chicago basketball and the bulls, it, it shows you people who I do find artistic and I do find transcendent that bring people together to root together. It's community. I think it's also what you were talking about is that um, kids need to take some ownership of what they do. And what I find mm. lacking in American schools is like a club dynamic mm. um, because where I broke out, I played sports off and on through high school. I did wrestling for a year and a half Mm. Um, before I discovered, well, <laughs> before I became much more interested in smoking weed and skateboarding, <laughs> and I was not going to lose any weight to play this sport anymore. Fuck that. <laughs> um, I was going to get high and skateboard instead. Which is also a challenge. Um, yeah. yeah. I and mean, that takes. Jackass came out. Skateboarding is the thing that shaped me the most in my first two years of high school and eighth grade, I would say. It's something where you learn, you learn how to actually like customize something. So it's like an introduction to building mm-hmm. um, and it's an introduction to skill because mm-hmm. you have to do the trick. You either do it or you don't. And right. you you have to show off. We learned how to film because we were making, you know, like videos for us to get sponsored. It was a whole culture. And the culture is very much um, akin to the hip hop culture mm-hmm. where it's do or die. Either you mm-hmm. perform or you don't. And if you fuck up, you're going to get ridiculed. So you build a backbone through skateboarding. And it's a mm. whole thing like that. That shaped me. And then, um, you know, playing football and wrestling, you learn how to deal with pain. Mm. Like there were days where after practice you throw up and you have to learn how to uh, actually uh, take care of yourself. Because the first couple weeks wrestling, I would throw up after every practice. And the reason I was doing wow. that was because I wasn't eating lunch. You know, because I was a poor kid and I was always trying to save my lunch money for recreation. Mm. But then I had to learn, oh, if I want to keep wrestling, I got to eat something Mm -hmm. before, you know, practice. Otherwise, I'm going to throw up every day. And that's worse. So I I learned how to, um, you know, take care of my own nutrition. So you learn a lot of things through sports. But then, like, I was never really into the sports like that. Football, two-a-days. I quit that after one semester, one year of that, because, uh, you know, again, I don't want to do all of that 
you know, the whole not drinking water thing. You can't swallow the water. You got to just weird. The wrestlers are the most hardcore. They're they're the most hardcore. I mean, but wrestling appealed to me because of the raw aggression that goes with it. Um, and it's 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 um, personal. Like you're on a team, but yeah. there's also individual, you know, uh, meets, you know, and there's an individual aspect to it. But that's why Jim Jordan's a psycho and was a wrestler. What really broke me out was when I got to the second high school, I was a part of like a culture festival. So I did spoken word poetry. Mm. And, you know, from that, I met girls who were doing Irish dancing. Another girl did belly dancing. There were girls doing hip hop dancing, you know, girls and guys. You know, there was my boys doing like the tomblas, you know, so these Indian dudes that were banging on the drums, you know, with another dude who was doing, you know, Congo drums. It was like amazing stuff. And all of us came together to put this thing together. And I just did a spoken word poem that my buddy actually you know, mixed up some some tracks for. So he actually did some turntable mixing for me. And I performed that. And then from that, you know, I joined my first band. Mm -hmm. And it was that that got me involved with multiple people from multiple different cultures. And that put me on the path to really be interested in anthropology, where it's like, People are interesting, man. There's yeah. so many different things to that's, learn about people. And, and I think that's the yeah. saddest thing about the time structure. You spend eight hours studying things you may never remember. And you need those things intellectually. But only two hours doing the things you never forget. And the things that will form you most mm -hmm. as a human being. Because even when you get fi hired for your first jobs, jobs tend to love athletes because they've learned resiliency. They've learned teamwork. And soldiers. They learn, you know, and I, and I think you just made me think about a... The departing Donnie T or departed Donnie T. What I think he really was bad at was losing. Sports He's a teach bad you how loser. to lose. And you now you With have dignity to. and yes. you know respect. I remember well, that. I mean, so my sports experience teach very you how limited. To win too. But at the end, you line up and you give fives to mm -hmm. everyone on the other team and you say, Good game. And there were some scumbags who did this bit to spit on the hand stuff, but by and large, I mean, and I didn't win most of the time, but the idea was like you know, this not in some not in the sense of some like, you know, aristocratic gentleman sports sort of thing, but like, this isn't war, right? This it's is a game. this is well, not just in the sense that it's not serious; it's play. But we're not at war. We are we are competing, and we're competitors, even opponents. But there is a code, and there's a sort of ethos, and there's a there's respect. There's an order. It's you have respect and so forth. <laughs> Yeah, we're starting to sound like old men, uh, but uh, <laughs> we are old. I want, <laughs> I want to back up though a second. So to the thing I asked you about sports, it's true. It seems like gives a way to connect with people that are different in a way that you might not surmise as possible, given some of the diversity discourse and the problems that uh, populate the media. But it was also like. Sports are really important for working class people and also not working class people, but I think by and large for working class people. And I wondered like, was maybe not just sports, but like you have a working class background in a way. And you, it sounded like when I said that to you, like, how do you connect with all these different yeah. kinds of people? I was imagining it's, it's hard in an urban area teaching high school and you're like, nah, it's all right. And I think it wasn't just sports though, it's your background. Like how, how does... How well, does class play out in that direction? Too? I, I think it was 
the, the beauty of whether it's sports or art, because I think both are creative acts. And when you're a kid, like my dad, he'll be the first to tell you, hated his job. My mom was a teacher, so she was kind of overworked. And the, it wasn't necessarily a completely toxic house, but there, were, there was obviously negative energy. But the thing that kept me going, the thing that I loved was baseball. I dream about baseball. You know, like there was this beautiful thing. So when you have kids from the same class in the same community and they have similar dreams, you could talk about that. You could talk about all the great players in the White Sox, how Jose Abreu just won, you know, the MVP and you hope Mankata gets better, you know, after having COVID and this guy, this closer they picked up and how the Cubs have always sucked and will always suck the rest of my life. But no, it's, uh, you know, so, but you learn like how to, so like I bag on the Cubs all the time, but the Cubs. Every once in a while they win. Right. I, I don't care. They like won the it. Browns. They right? won in 2016. Nobody cares. It was, uh, <laughs> But it's the funniest thing. But okay, so here's the thing that I do think connects awesome to Chicago sports was Chicago. The Chicago White Sox won in 05. and so most of the White Sox fans that I know, they're more diverse. They're economically were poorer, right? But like it was awesome. Like that was our team. Like I still remember Joe Creedy and so many guys on this team. The Cubs won, which is in the upper class part of town. Wasn't always. Now it's gentrified. Right. You know, really, yeah. it used, used to be working class, what, 40 years ago? Exactly. You know, Harry Carey doing the games was hilarious. You know, be bombed by the seventh inning if you're saying all that, all types of inappropriate shit. But he like like that is an upper class place and they already won in 2016. What happened? They fired their coach. They're not happy again. When it was also a matter of like rubbing it in people's face. And and so when you connect to these kids, you could because I teach a ton of Cubs fans and we jaw at each other in for like to begin a class. But that lightens the why load. the fuck are they Cubs fans? Is it, you know, so the Cubs they, fan, here's, they because they came up, they won the World Series. You know, here's so my theory with that. the Cubs fan thing and the class dynamic of it. Right. Because I thought. You know, my grandma was a Cubs fan, right? Nobody's and perfect. Nobody's I, I, perfect. I, was just, I just wasn't a baseball fan. My grandma was fucking perfect. Um, but um, <laughs> despite that, um, I thought with the Cubs having lost for so long, 108 years, I thought this was going to be like the old Bulls rallies where the city was going to burn and it yeah, was going to just be a hedonistic no, good time. But the, I think the class dynamic did stifle that. Because, yeah, because it was like, yeah, nowadays it, Cubs fans are petty bourgeoisie. You know, yeah. Yeah, they, this is improper type of thing. Right, exactly. And man, it would have been such a blast if it was like... Cause, cause you know, another, dude's not gonna break champagne bottle on the street because you know, yeah, because it's car. a million where he lives. Yeah, it and was, he's got to go to his job making two hundred grand right, the next day. Right. It's he's not, not gonna yeah. be like uh, Escape from New York or, or Philly, Philly when the Eagles won. I was waiting <laughs> for that. Yeah, we used to yeah. talk about it in Carbondale. You know, working at Walmart. That when the Cubs finally win, we're gonna go back home and light the city up. But so, it didn't so, happen. So man. I think it's this: it's that sports are fun. And in rich or poor, sports are fun. And so you can connect from class level to that. The, the curses, the sad part is if that is your only prime motivator. Like I look at like where I went. Dwayne Wade was the most famous person that ever went to our high school. Mm. Kanye went there too. Okay. And mm -hmm. he's arguably more famous than that. But in terms of sports, there's D. Wade. And so everybody post D. Wade, they want to be an NBA player if you're on the basketball team. Not everybody thinks that could happen. But that is the dream. The dream is not to be a college professor. None of my friends mm. thought that way, even though I was in AP classes. My, my, the valedictorian just wanted to be a high school math teacher. That's all he wanted to be. Right. And he became that. And now he's leaving it to be a counselor. And he's going to be a great counselor. But the dream level is very low compared to if you go to some class and the average income there 
is 300, 400, 500 grand. Those kids think they can be lawyers, doctors, engineers. Right. Well, the the dreams are different and they play sports too. Hang on to this thought. I want to come back to it, but I just want to, what I was trying to get at and wondering what you think about, can being working class unite people? Absolutely. Well, I, I think like undoubtedly. I mean, objectively I think we, it's the case that a working class people are all working class, but I'm, but I mean. Since you can be like, and if it's this, we are united on sports in Chicago, whether that's Bears fans, Bulls fans, even though there are only three of them right now for the Bulls, Sox, Cubs, there are things that motivate people to be together. The problem is the working class doesn't have that sport or team where you're all competing. We don't unless have the space you treat anymore. the bourgeoisie as you yeah, know the New York Yankees. I mean, and it's also we like, don't have a unified goal. Like right. For right. once upon a time, you had infrastructure projects, you had the space race to be involved in, and the working class made that, and they were cognizant that mm. it was them doing that. Class struggle isn't um, sexy. It's harder. Right but now, it's, it's, but it's empowering. We all know? work to make separate lords money. It you is know? competitive. It's a class struggle, but so it sounds like let's go to the next thing though, like because this leads into kind of the school reopening, right? Okay, issue because what ke- what Mister Lee said to me um, in a previous discussion was that um, um, what's kind of missing from the way teachers are responding to parents? Because I have a mm. let me back up mm. so. I have discussion with parents. There are parents in my family. You know, I work with parents. And one of the things that I get is that, um, you know, that they're upset that the schools aren't open and I have long discussions. And one of the things that come out in those long discussions is that this is, oh, oh, this is about, this is about money, right? So, um, that basically is just an equation that, um, you know, um, so are you saying like, no, like I'm saying, rich- let me, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm stuttering yeah, cool. here, but, um, to get to the point that, um, basically schools function as daycares for them and whether or not teachers believe that that's their job, that's what they function as in some capacity in this so, society, in this society. So if they're not functioning that way. That money's coming out of the pockets of working class people. So what Mr. Lee said to me in a previous conversation was that there needs to be some solidarity with those other working class people who aren't teachers. Yes, it's unsafe for teachers to go to school, but other working class people, they have to go to work and they need a place for their kids to go so that society can keep on functioning, so that they can keep on going to work and the burden of that daycare isn't put on them. And with the schools reopening, I'm just wondering how you feel about those class dynamics as far as the solidarity between teachers, which is a segment of the working class, and the wider working class and the pressures that uh, ineffic- an inefficient government are putting on both sides, you know? Where everybody's afraid of the unknown, right? So I've been back, you know, and I think people were afraid of being back. I The way I said it at the beginning is this. If you want me on the picket line... And it's about working conditions, pay, and making this a sustainable profession. Let's go. If it's about doing my job, does that merit a strike? Because if it's you doing your job is going to help out those people in the community to be able to go back to work, to not have to afford that child care, that's a thing. And I understand this conditions are unsafe. But what I am hearing, whether this is true or not, is that it's getting safer and safer to come back to school. 
and 50% of people are doing, I think 50% of schools are either in hybrid or they're, they're back. My mom is over 60 years old. She's been back since day one. She's teaching. She's teaching. Mm. And I was afraid for her and I was pissed off of for yeah, her. I can imagine. Because the archdiocese don't pay mm-hmm. teachers nearly enough for what they do. And they so throw she teaches in a Catholic school? Catholic school. Like my mom's been nursing the whole yeah. time. And she's exactly. So 60 plus. It's just a very peculiar uh, political position when you were just on the picket line and you're asking to do what not everybody else is doing in their defense where health issues are going to be, especially mm-hmm. for the uh, older teachers of concern and valid, but it's, it's even bigger. The, the problem keeps coming back to this. It's bigger than them. It's Americans and a lot of workers in other countries are extremely overworked. They are exploited and they are underpaid for what they do. And that I, so I think they're fighting, you know, they're either conflating the issues or, you know, being hyperbolic like that tweet that got deleted, which they looked really bad for. So, yeah. So could you unpack that? Like teachers are overworked and exploited. I mean, this is, I, I go most Fridays, you know, I, I was texting with my girlfriend yesterday and I sent her the Bernie Sanders meme. Um, In neoliberal speak, we say your partner, partner. <laughs> your partner. <laughs> So the morning I open the morning, I, I, there's that, uh, the McGregor's fight. Uh, this is why I got to go in 10 minutes. It's kind of McGregor's fight tonight. Um, so there's this meme of, I think somebody photoshopped Bernie Sanders, Conor McGregor with the gloves, choking somebody out with the, with the, the one look. of the Bernie Sanders. Memes. Exactly. I loved it. One of my favorites. So I texted that in the morning and then I texted that at 5 PM and she's like, dude, do you have dementia? Like, why did you text me this like twice a day? I'm like, I am exhausted. I am physically and mentally exhausted every Friday I get to. Because mm. when I get to school, I grade for an hour or I call parents or I lesson plan. And I am working from 8 to 3.15. And I'm also maintaining relationships with like, not my comrade. Like, I like these people. Like, and you mm-hmm. got to do it all. You know, mm-hmm. you got to coach sometimes. You got to connect to these kids. And you are drained by the time you get to Friday. And I mean, anyone who can remember being in school knows how draining it is. But you are on the curating side, not on the... Right. I mean, I remember right. my grandma, my grandmother was an educator for many years. And she said once to me, like, you remember how hard it was when you first started in school? You know, you got to learn to do this. You got to learn to do that. You got to remember your teacher's name. <clears throat> she said, you have to remember one name. I had to remember 30 names in the first day. And then it's just like, it clicked. I was out of school at that point, but it's like, that's it's harder work. It's not just day. I mean, functionally speaking in our economy, it is daycare, especially in this COVID situation where people are being forced back to work. They need daycare, which is funded by taxes instead of private, you know, instead of parents paying out of their pocket. But for teachers, I mean, my God, it's, it's like, I, I got 120 kids and I it got would no, be easier. And I know stuff about it would be easier just to work in an office in a lot of ways, perhaps you, you do it. You do it for the love of it. You do it because I do believe uh, existentially or spiritually and you're gifted with something to do. Like my mom's a teacher. My grandma's a teacher. Grand, great grandma was a teacher. You right? believe in the vocation it's in your blood task, a yeah. little bit. Yeah. So you, you have these, you know, things that are just natural to you. It's still a process and a craft to be developed. But what I think is interesting about now and in CTU's defense, hi, hybrid anything, I don't know if I believe in. I don't know if I believe in hybrid cars. It seemed to like, like somewhat help the, the worst of both worlds. But like what, it, what hybrid learning is, is I have two kids in front of me and I have 18 kids on a computer screen and I have to teach them both simultaneously. So this so is an imperfect yeah. sign. Let me ask you, okay, I got two questions if you still got time. Yeah, of course. So one is like, 
about reopening? Are there problems and do you think it's safe? And are there political problems? I, I thought it was safe. And then I just heard yesterday we just had the second highest death toll. <laughs> so like if you, it's if, you, if, if, if you're going to go back to the Pritzker quote about, you know, the large gatherings are a bad thing. Uh, you have the largest gatherings probably occurring during the day in schools. Mm -hmm. I on the ground, what I see is uh, the most underrated people in the current situation are the janitorial staff, mm -hmm. um, who everybody at every job should be cool with. Because, um, like, not only like do they do some of the hardest work there in terms of what is uh, demeaning, but uh, like they're cool, they're workers, you know, just like you and me. And so they they're doing a fantastic job of wiping everything down on surfaces, keeping keeping it safe. Yes. So they're the essential workers. They are the essential workers. They're more like they're more working class than I am, right? Like, like that's, you know, that that is the truth. So in solidarity with them, like, yo, they're great. Um, I I think if you keep your distance, it's it's not terrible. Like I I don't really feel fear there. I'm always in a mask. And what kind of problems are you confronting? Like you said the other earlier, you know, it's tricky. You know, the class dynamics, like in the classroom. I mean, yeah, like. The hybrid model, you got a lot of people on a screen, you got two in the room and you were saying something like, I mean, not to close anybody out, but like, if only these kids could get that attention all the time, it would sort of close the class gap, wealth, wealthy and poor, like rich kids basically get that degree of attention all the time, right? This is my, exactly. And, it, and I'm really glad you said that because it makes me think of this Harkness model, which is one of the best ways to teach. Essentially, if you go to Phillips Exeter, I think it's a privileged, uh, like private school somewhere in the Northeast. Exeter. Yes. My God. Yeah, of course. So you sit kids, you know, in an oval table. Paul Sweezy went to Exeter. That makes sense. America's greatest Marxist. And they give, and they give scholarships, but it's like, like a lottery scholarship to these poor kids, you know, like mm -hmm. air quote poor kids. And what they do that's so good is they have kids in a flowing Socratic conversation. And that's how they learn the most because there's only eight to 12 of them. So the numbers come down to this is we're always underfunding teachers, not paying them enough, like complaining sometimes about how much they get paid in some areas, which I think is asinine because you're again, you are mentally and physically drained every Friday that you go to it. And that's not to undermine other professions. But when you are teaching 15 plus, 20 plus, 25 plus, they're never going to have that ability, similarly to the Exeter kids or the kids that are in private schools with smaller ratios, to have the confidence of talking to the professors because they are not engaged in nearly as many academic mm. conversations. How do you understand how do you understand the activity and the role of teaching in terms of a political vocation and the political function you fulfill? And and again, not in a divisive sense, but like furthering class politics in the sense that you know the working class is the overwhelming majority of america and 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 represent teaching a working class um body of students like how do you understand the way that a teacher such as yourself could do something good for the working class people that you deal with you're educating and the the future workers um into an economy that is being, uh, whether it's austerity, and I'll get to that point in a second, but I don't see kids as workers. I see them as individuals right now, right? But I do believe every child has something that makes them different from somebody else, whether it's the personality or whatever. 
But what I see happening, at least from where I grew up, how I grew up and these kids that I'm teaching is a majority of people do not like what they do professionally. They don't like being at their job. They don't like working. They don't like working so much. And so to me, the working condition question becomes, how do we, if you're doing something that you are in a way forced to do because you need to afford that mortgage to pay to have housing for your child and then pay um, for obviously groceries and babysitting, whatever. Um, how do we limit that time? The teachers are experiencing this from 8 to 3.15 as a fellow worker, education, educating fellow workers. But the worker being part of the working class, I think, is more embodied by the younger teachers compared to the older teachers, especially in the system now. I know districts where they're cutting out pensions. And mm. that's what I mean by austerity. I have to work if I would stay in this current district for two more years compared to the older people. I will make less money compared to the people that were older. I also have to pay for my master's credits that previous teachers did not get. And so in what a way, so you see, uh, in my uh, district, you get master's, master's plus 15, plus 30 hours, plus 45 hours, so PhD. That means your That's pay, your lane. So your pain goes up, the more pay, pay goes go up, up, the more you get. Now, it used to be, you could, they, the district would pay for that, your master's classes. So they'd pay for you to they, get they, educated exactly. for your degree. They, for which they no longer do. Why? Because. Budget cuts or what? It could be budget cuts. It could be, um, it, I mean, that's probably the most obvious one, right? I think it's lack of fight for making the future of millennials and Gen Z or anybody younger than Gen X who had a better deal better. It's either not being advocated for because these are older people who do not have as much of a concern for the younger people coming up. And the good ones do. But there is less fight amongst them. So you mean them. the baby boomers just are less concerned with the... With the they got theirs. They did get theirs. And they're not giving us ours. And granted, I, this is the most money I've ever made. It's a good job. It puts me less in the working class because I'm making more money the, than the, the, the ones who have the power to do something. About exactly. Yeah. They're not And the aggressive. fight's not there to push them. They're not. Because the younger kids, and this is where I feel bad for them, the, the new teachers, you know, most of my friends there in the first hiring class, they're anywhere between 22 and, you know, 27 years old. And I'm a little older. I'm 31. They don't, they have very little knowledge of working class struggle, whether you go back to how child labor was kind of eviscerated by unions mm -hmm. and uh, people on the left. And they don't have knowledge of that. They don't have knowledge of how to advocate for themselves within the unions mm -hmm. and then what they're going to do when they eventually take power within the unions. Mm -hmm. And my district's a good one. You have other districts and charter schools that are privatized, mm -hmm. don't want to give teachers pensions. Mm -hmm. And so, again, pensions, if you actually look at the history of them, for cops and firemen, particularly firemen, when they couldn't use their body anymore and couldn't work, that mm -hmm. was the initial thing of pensions. Mm -hmm. So it was a very physical thing to which I understand. But again, you know, I look at my mom, love my mom to death. She's at her wit's end, you know, being 60 in front mm -hmm. of kids all the well, time. Well, you also need that pension there so that a person can go into this career Agreed. and give it their all, knowing that when they get to the end of their service to their community, they're going to be okay. But a person isn't going to be able to give their all to their community if they don't know that when they get to the end, they're going to be okay. If, if they know that when they get to their end, they're not going to be okay, they're simply not going to give that devotion to the community. The day we met the assistant superintendents and superintendents, who I like, and who I get along with, and who hired me, they said to us, I would start a 403B. And they said, because you never know what could happen with the pension. Why, are you why is that even a, an anxious thought in anybody's head after getting hired? 
And it goes back to austerity within the aughts, the early aughts of having an uncle who was in the Air Force who worked for United who had his pension cut. That's unacceptable. And that's what I think keeps at least teachers very much in struggle right now. Oh, 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 oh,